Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the MacroCast. I'm your host, Elon Moy, a managing director at Penta. My co-hosts are John Fagan and Brendan Walsh of Markets Policy Partners. Hey, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it's it's a good morning, but some of the economic data that came out over the past week may not be so good. Inflation coming in hotter than expected, retail sales weaker than expected, the markets going crazy about all of that, all of those numbers. So let's just go ahead and dig right into some of this. And maybe we start by looking at inflation, which actually accelerated in January. The consumer price index rose 0.3% from the previous month compared to a 0.2% increase the month before. Year over year, it was up 3.1% when the market had been hoping for a sub-3% number. So, you know, it looks like this is why the Fed is saying that it needs more confidence before it's willing to start cutting rates, right? Definitely. And it's kind of, uh, the last month's numbers were what John and I were kind of worried about going forward, where, you know, we kind of had those six months of goods deflation, actually, you know, dropping prices. And, um you know, now those are kind of settling out, but uh, service inflation is still kind of running at a normal pace. Uh, the other kind of quirk to it is the housing numbers still haven't started to come down. So, you know, that's in the pipeline. Uh, but even with that, if you're the Fed, you kind of have to maybe strip that out and, and look at the, the the components of everything else. But um, the, the, the shipping disruptions uh, are definitely starting to uh, play a role in it. And I think that played a role in the producer price index that came out this morning, which was much higher than people expected. And that kind of leads the CPI by by three months. So this is stuff now that's in the pipeline for the, you know, the spring. Yeah, you mentioned the shelter cost. The uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics said that that contributed, the the rise in shelter costs contributed to about two thirds of the jump that we saw in the CPI. So you know, is mortgage rates part of the issue here? Is that sort of feeding into it? Or or why are we seeing shelter costs remain so stubbornly sticky? It's just the way that the BLS uh, computes it. They do it uh, on a six and 12 month rolling average. So their, their shelter uh, components are very, very backward looking. In, in normal times, it works because usually house prices don't massively go up and down. Uh, but the, the pandemic kind of... Uh, Put a, a little bit of goofiness into that. Um, so they're not going to, you know, reinvent it, uh, you know, for the short term and, and take away all that historical data. And, and also the, the Fed is aware of this. You know, they, they're, they're able to put in kind of real time data into the monthly ones if they want. So that will start to seep through because we already know what happened the last six months, uh, especially rent prices have come off uh, a lot in, in the last six months. So that will start to feed through. And like you said, it was two thirds of the increase uh, in really both the headline and the core. But but their concern now is one that goods prices, you know, might start creeping back up. And but even bigger, uh, the, the services inflation outside of housing, you know, is starting to it's not going crazy, but it, it's it's ticking back up. Um where maybe two months ago we thought that you know we're we're going back down to two percent pretty quickly, uh, and that that outlook isn't quite as uh, certain today as it was maybe a couple months ago. Yeah, I think that's the key to certainty, right? Uh, and uh, and you know after those CPI numbers came out, you know the ink wasn't dry in the report when you know analysts and economists that have been you know touting the soft landing story and continual improvement in inflation, you know narratives die hard on Wall Street, right? So they were coming 
roaring yeah. out of the blocks to explain why January CPI was nothing to see here. Right. It was, hey, you got their seasonal adjustments and their seasonal distortions early in the year. And an echo from the weirdness of the start of the pandemic is still coming through in the first quarter CPI numbers. And by the way, the Fed doesn't even focus on CPI. They focus on core PCE. Core PCE is likely to be, you know, it's essentially like and then look at the three and six month moving averages. And they're still right, doing right. things yeah. here. The Fed's still on track to cut rates. And, wow, uh, take a know, breath, John. Of, I'm exhausted <laughs> listening to you. <laughs> like the. The, 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 you know, the sort of shrillness with which the pushback came is, uh, I think, a testament to just how wedded people are to this narrative uh, and just how high the conviction has been in the markets. Uh, and, you know, we've seen that uh, that faith shaken again today. But, you know, a similar exercise was sort of played with the retail sales number. And, you know, it was it was a real stinker. And uh, retail sales in January and, you know, cue the uh, the discussion about how it was all about the weather. This all may be true. Right. And reading too much into one data point is not going to get you where you want to be as a as an investor. Uh, but, you know, I think that 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 goes back to the point of, of Brendan's uh, uh, that Brendan closed with there, which is, you know, conviction in this soft landing scenario uh, had just been too too high. And uh, and we're just in a lower conviction equilibrium. These are the kind of data points that uh, that shake markets out of their complacency. The optimists may end up being right, uh, but it's a lot less clear uh, in the picture than uh, than they you know had previously thought. And, and that was kind of the point that we've been making. <clears throat> it wasn't that we had this huge view that inflation was going to massively uh, you know go up. The bigger one that you know the first half of the year was going to be bumpy, and most importantly that the Fed really <laughs> didn't want to cut as much as the the market had been pricing in. So, you know, we kind of thought that, you know, June may, might make sense for the first, and that's looking much and more like a reality. And the, and the market now has priced uh, that in. The, the March cut is completely uh, priced out of the market. Um, we'll, we'll see kind of how the data goes, whether, you know, June does it. But you have that dynamic because the outside of the inflation, the rest of the data this week was, was pretty weak. Uh, you know, we are seeing slowing. Uh, we're also seeing more and more, you know, layoff announcements and things like that. So the labor market still is holding in there, but it's it's certainly not the, you know, super duper strong, especially in that um, kind of that white collar kind of management role. That That's where you're seeing the, the layoffs, uh, the service sector and um, and uh, hospitality and, and healthcare. They're still doing quite strong. Yeah, I think it's kind of funny that, you know, the no landing scenario was kind of heralded as the optimal case, actually, after we saw some of the big jobs numbers at the end of last year. And now it seems like folks are worried that no landing is actually not a good thing because it means that inflation is not necessarily going to come back down to where you want it to be. And that's going to mean the Fed has to stay higher for even longer than it had anticipated. And so, you know, some of our some of our perceptions of you know, what the optimal scenario seems to be are, are shifting as well. You well, know, no. yeah. And, and but, you know, to your point, any any residual hope of a March rate cut just seemed to get completely stomped on after right. the CPI numbers. And out. a lot of this issue has been geopolitical, which, you know, can't put that into model. But things seem to be getting worse rather than better on that front. Absolutely. And, and I thought it was also kind of interesting that we saw the Biden administration come out and, and try to characterize some of the 
um, inflation that we've been seeing. They've they talked a lot about this idea of greedflation at the beginning of the cycle, you know, coming out of the pandemic or companies, you know, hiking prices just because they can more than what they're seeing in terms of actual uh, supply chain costs that are coming through. They're, they're adding that extra padding on and passing it on to consumers. And now, after, during the Super Bowl, even, which I thought was kind of interesting, they're talking about this idea of shrinkflation, meaning that, you know, prices may be staying the same, but you're getting less for your dollar. So, you know, I, I don't know. I felt like my chips were pretty, my chips were pretty crunchy and, and my bag of chips was pretty full. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like lower lower portion sizes may not be the worst thing in the world. <laughs> America as a America's waistline collectively. Uh, but anyway, I mean, not to not to be too uh, not to be too glib about it. But yeah, it's you know, I, I think the whole not to editorialize too much, but the whole greedflation thing. Obviously, that's a you know, there's it's a it's a it's a political spin. I think the politic the pushback on it also is also political. Right. Like if you have a situation in which companies find that they have pricing power, they're going to take advantage of it. I mean, we've just seen that. Right. It's what they do. And consumers have been willing to pay it, you know. Yeah. And they're going to keep raising prices until it begins to impact demand. And, you know, we talked a little bit about this last week. You know, the sort of Kraft Heinz came out this week. It was pretty similar to what we saw uh, from some of the uh, from from PepsiCo and McDonald's, which is, you know, they're they they all missed on sales. Uh, projections, but uh, beat on profit. And, you know, that was kind of indicative of the the kind of prevailing dynamic of, uh, you know, in basically uh, uh, consumers feeling a little pinched by these persistent price hikes, but those price hikes, you know, looking pretty, uh, pretty nice on the on the profit margin uh, side for these companies. So, uh, you know, at some point, there's a there's a point where the the calculus starts working in the other direction. And you begin to get uh, the demand destruction, you know, to a degree and the pricing power for these items is not infinite. Uh, and you start running into uh, headwinds and they're trying to, you know, obviously these corporations are trying to find, you know, where that, you know, where that event horizon is and get as close as they can as they can to it. Maybe who knows, maybe maybe they're close to it now, uh, given uh, given the, you know, the sort of uh, the, these latest earnings. Yeah. And I think if you're the Fed, that the first quarter earnings and outlooks probably are more important to, to pay attention to than, you know, probably January data, uh, which, as we said, had some weather distortions, but also data is not forward looking. You know, it's actually very backward looking. We're, we're halfway through uh, February already. Yeah. And, and in terms of the shrinkflation narrative, talk about backward looking. I feel like, you know, that that felt like a real thing back in 2022 as companies were trying to figure out, you know, how do we you know, how do we, how do we grapple with the very real supply chain costs and, yep. and increases? Do we just raise prices? Do we, do we shrink the packages, et cetera? But it feels like sort of the wrong message for this moment when that's largely passed, passed by. And we're now in a place where consumers are, to your point, John, starting to push back a little bit and, and close their wallets. Yeah. And uh, we, we wrote a little piece on this. Uh, there's a there's an ad from Chili's. I didn't know that Chili's uh, hadn't done an advertisement campaign in three years, uh, but they have one out now. And it's basically busting on McDonald's like the, for eighteen dollars for a Big Mac meal. And they say you can come to Chili's and get actually a nice burger. And fries for 18 bucks. And so this is, you know, that's essentially the message. And, you know, this is kind of where uh, these these things, you know, organically begin to you get to sort of the comp- 
beginning to compete on price again and the capability of doing that in an environment where, you know, input prices have stabilized and then you get opportunistic, uh, you know, uh, companies like, you know, like Chili's, I guess, who are trying to recapture market share uh, from those companies. So, you know, this is supposed, this is how the markets are supposed to work. It's how the economy is supposed to work. They're kind of fundamental uh, dynamics. Uh, and, uh, and so hopefully there's, there's an organic, um, you know, there's an organic pushback here as, uh, as, you know, the markets try to correct from, uh, from this, uh, this inflation scenario. The last Chili's commercial that I remember is the one with Justin Timberlake. And I'm not even going to try to sing it because it's going to be hugely embarrassing on this podcast, but Chili's baby back ribs, right? Yeah, the, the ultimate. Ribs. <laughs> I don't know if those are $18 the or right. not. But... In their Thanks a lot. Now that's stuck in my head for the rest of the rest yeah. of the week to, to just stay in line with the millennial Super Bowl uh, Super Bowl halftime show I have to think about the Chili's the Chili's commercial but okay so this is a good segue I will say into you know dissecting some of the retail sales <laughs> numbers a little bit more because uh, we did see in in January that uh, sales at restaurants and bars were still up 0.7 percent even though you know folks were were cutting back in other areas so you know people people still want to go out and and enjoy a nice beverage with their friends, even during dry January, apparently. Yeah, and when it was snowing. So maybe the <laughs> there's nothing else to do. There might be more accurate than, you know, it wasn't weather affected if people were out eating and not drinking, apparently. <laughs> so in, in terms of what we saw folks cut back on, yeah, I think building materials, uh, lawn and garden stores, as you would expect, that had a pretty big drop, I think 4%. Um, from the previous month, but were there any other places and places of weakness that you saw that that might be concerning? I think we're still going through that transition of where people spent their money when they were locked in their house to now <laughs> spending your money where you know you're out and about and travel. Uh, so I think that narrative's still going on, um, but we're definitely pulling back on on a lot of the the goods inflation and spending it much more on on services. Which is not only is it good or bad, it, it just is what it is, you know. <laughs> but when when you add up all the numbers, we are spending less, especially on big ticket items. I think people kind of already bought their big ticket and done renovations to their house, uh, and then you know going out to dinner is a lot less expensive than you know putting a new garden in your backyard. Yeah, and the Taylor Swift Eras Tour bump is over in the U.S. I guess she's now overseas, <laughs> so you know she's yeah, in, right. she's been in Japan, point, I guess so. They just uh, they just went into a technical recession, but they're obviously going to come roaring out of it here. <laughs> that would be that would be the most Taylor amazing Swift. headline, John. Taylor Swift single handedly saves Japan from recession. What what can she not do, really? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, and yeah. you know, but hey, you know, J Lo just announced a new tour, uh, so hey, the, there's there's your engine of growth for 2024, I guess. So. Um, anyway, kidding aside, there it's <laughs> oh, Beyonce's uh, touring. So the, oh, oh. the big names are back out. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's it is just, you know, there is sort of this drumbeat of bad news about, you know, the consumer debt balances and that sort of stuff. And, you know, the dry powder and the residual savings from the covid era splurge uh, being drained finally and so forth. Um, you know, no big fiscal stimulus on the horizon, although this, uh, you know, this tax cut is, uh, is still a possibility here The you know, it's a, it, it's, it's not necessarily easy to see where the, you know, the consumer is going to get the next sort of uplift. And, uh, and, and that I think, you know, in the U S 
hope springs eternal. And we do have the, you know, the, the shop till you drop mentality. Um, but, you know, looking overseas, as we mentioned, that reset, the sort of technical recession in Japan, technical recession in, um, uh, in, in the, in the UK and a, you know, okay. narrowly missed recession in the EU. I mean, this is, and, and China, we all know how the economic outcomes there. Beijing has been, you know, pushing uh, harder and harder on the gas pedal just to stand still, it seems. And they are, uh, you know, th their economic data is maybe better than it was over the, you know, uh, three, six months ago, but still looks really tepid and, uh, and has a gigantic drag from property. So, you know, looking, scanning around the world, there just doesn't seem to be a big engine of growth out there. There doesn't seem to be a lot of, um, you know, oomph, a lot of animal spirits uh, running through the global economy. It's understandable in a lot of cases why, uh, you know, you would see the, you know, with uh, conflict right on the door of Europe uh, and, uh, you know, saber rattling in, uh, in sort of the Taiwan Straits and stuff like that. It's just a dangerous and scary world. Uh, and uh, and a lot of the rest of the you know the world is maybe feeling it more than uh, than the U.S. That's not unusual. So, uh, but it really is hard to see you know what's what you know if we're going to get a, a big uplift and the no landing scenario and we take off again. What what's what's fueling that takeoff? It's hard to say. Do you think that there's any chance that the Bank of England could move ahead of the U.S. in terms of cutting rates? Just thinking about the weakness in the economy there. Or do you think that their inflation situation is um, so much more entrenched than, than ours is that, that the Bank of England is really just kind of stuck in a difficult place? Yeah, we think that the Bank of England is in one of the you know, toughest of the major central banks, one of the toughest um, situations given its you know, more distinctly stagflationary problem. But, you know, it's, um, you know the, the Bank of England, we think, will probably follow the Fed's lead. Uh, a little bit. Uh, but, you know, it's that that's that if there is a central bank that in, let's say, global growth does stabilize and start to pick up, uh, you know, the among the central banks, like the risk of having to go back to hikes, I think, is highest for the Bank of England. I don't think it's mm -hmm. very high uh, here because we th we think that growth will stay low and inflation will be sticky, but not reaccelerate. Um, and so we don't think the Bank of England will be forced to go back into into rate hikes. But of all the major central banks, we think the BOE um, is probably the most at risk of that, uh, and uh, and will probably be the the you know on the later side of of beginning to cut. Interesting. So <laughs> it's more likely that they end up hiking than they end up cutting, despite the weakness in the economy. No, I think they'll probably end up cutting, but I think that, you know, if we're, if the, if the Fed is at like a 2% chance that they actually have to like go back into rate hikes, I think the Bank of England is more like a 10% chance. They've just got, you know, the, the, the dynamics of their economy now are, you know, look uh, more stagflationary and, uh, and it's, it's not a comfortable place to be. Got it. I want to pick up on something else that you you mentioned, John, which is, you know, the possibility of, you know, maybe a, a tiny boost of fiscal stimulus from, you know, the tax bill that is, has, I believe it's passed the House, but has not yet uh, stalled, that is stalled in the Senate, quite frankly. Um, you know, we're also facing the potential for another government shutdown, 
once again, March 1st and March 8th. And the latest reporting that that I saw out of out of Punchbowl was that, you know, there is still a, an appetite among some hardline Republicans to push for not just the shutdown, which would happen if uh, the government is not funded by by early March. But also, if they haven't passed sort of full year spending bills by April 30th, there would be a one percent across the board sequester. 1% across board spending reductions for both defense and non-defense spending. And so that would be actually contractionary, right? Not just, not just, so oh, the lights are off and everyone could pay eventually in a couple of days, but, you know, real, real fiscal uh, austerity uh, being imposed. And that, the risk of that seems to be, you know, non-zero, you maybe not, maybe not likely, but certainly non-zero. Um, and that could be another potentially destabilizing moment for the markets. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've seen we've seen the dysfunction, obviously, uh, it's it's dispiriting and uh, and and worrisome, obviously, on Capitol Hill. But, you know, whenever you see these like worst case scenarios, even as poisonous and uh, and and toxic a climate uh, it is up there, it seems as though, you know, the both parties look over a cliff at something like, you know, a, a you know, automatic 1% sequester and, and, and back off. Um, maybe that's, maybe that logic, um, of <laughs> maybe, maybe that, that logic of avoiding worst case scenarios begins to erode as we get closer to, uh, you know, a very contentious election, obviously, but, uh, you know, the operative assumption is that, you know, it, they'll, they'll come up with an 11th hour fix. That's why politics, that's why these things end up government shutdowns are aside. That's why, you know, we've talked about, we talked about the, you know, the potential for a, a, a debt limit accident. Essentially, it's always going to be a surprise, right? If, if it ever happens, it's going to be a gigantic shock because we've just seen this movie before. And, you know, the 11th hour compromise is just so, you know, hardwired into everybody's expectations for these things that, uh, you know, when, when, a, when a worst case scenario, uh, you know, if it does occur, then, uh, then it does, it would be a meaningful shock. Absolutely. And, and the Fed is, operating in a political environment, even though it is not itself, obviously, a political institution. And so, Brendan, when you mentioned the possibility of a of a June rate cut, it seems like that's the latest they can wait, right? If they want to if they want to get it done in, in, in 2024, you would either need to do it during the summer, right? Or you wait till after the election, because once you get too close to November, anything is going to look like it's politically motivated. I totally agree. And I think that's why they did the pivot at the end of the, the year, uh, which was ahead of what the market was ex- expecting. But I think they did it for political reasons where they didn't want to seem to be favoring one candidate to the other. The market then got way ahead of itself in how many uh, cuts that they were going to do. But I still think they're on that path to, uh, you know, cut it at the beginning of the summer uh, and then, you know, hopefully kind of put it on, you know, cruise control. We'll 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 do 25 at every meeting. Um, and, and when they cut, I think they're going to give a very clear uh, path of it's not meeting to meeting. Now it's uh, it's already set uh, until after the election. Do you think there's a chance that they might do one, see how it goes and then, you know, sort of wait until 2025 to to act again? Because I, I I just wonder if if they if they sort of set it and forget it, you, then you're locked into maybe a higher a higher level of rate cuts than maybe you want to be at for this year. 
Yeah, that's the, I mean, a lot can change in the next one, or sure. three months before they have to do it, or four months. Uh, but obviously, if if they give the guidance, they don't have to do it if, if things massively change. But I think they would prefer to, to give the market pretty clear guidance on what's coming so sure. they don't seem at all, uh, you know, interfering in the in the election. Sure. And we've talked a little bit about this before, the extent to which the Fed is going to be in the spotlight or dragged into the spotlight uh, of politics. Obviously, former President Trump is not shy about his opinions on the Fed. Uh, you know, uh, Biden is more of a traditional politician and is unlikely to, you know, to to say a whole lot about uh, about Fed policy. But uh, but Trump is definitely not cut from that cloth. So, uh, you know, if if they want to stay out of politics, they're going to have you know they're going to have a hard time doing that with uh, one of the candidates potentially talking about them. And uh, you know he's already uh, you know riffed on what uh, you know what he might uh, decide regarding uh, Chair Powell's uh, tenure and so forth. So and his views on how interest rates are too high and and that sort of thing. We'll we'll see. Uh, you know there there are going to be a lot of other issues uh, on the table in the uh, in the election. Maybe the Fed. <laughs> We'll get off, uh, get off easy. But it is a, a weird dynamic because a, a cut theoretically could help the economy, which would help Biden. But it's also very specifically what Trump is calling for. So, <laughs> who, who would the who would the average voter view as uh, the Fed is uh, kowtowing to? Yeah, certainly both sides could could message that definitely. Um, guys, what else is on your radar when you think about the next week? Long weekend, right? Oh, that's oh, how could I forget? <laughs> How could I forget? What's on my mind is the three-day weekend. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm doing my taxes on Monday, so it's going to be a, a real exciting weekend for me. <laughs> Great. Well, that does it for us today on the MacroCast. I do want to let our listeners know one more thing that we want to share with you. We are planning to make some changes to the MacroCast, and next week will be the last episode in its current form. We're going to let you know more about our plans soon, so tune in next week as we reflect on all the twists and turns of the economy that we've talked about over the years and look ahead at what's to come. We hope you will join us. But for now, I'm Elon Moy with Penta. Thanks to my co-hosts, Brendan and John of Markets Policy Partners. Thank you for listening, and remember that you can always subscribe to the MacroCast wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great day.